everybody. Welcome to True Crime University. This is your Professor Debbie. And we are back here again to continue our discussion of the Richardson family murders. Now, I have a little bit of business to attend to before we get back into the case. This is very important, so pay attention. I need feedback from everybody. I want to know how I'm doing. Are you enjoying the show? Do you use it to go to sleep because it's so boring? Like, get, give me something. And here's what I want to know. Obviously, Ian's know that I've always been fascinated by crime. So, of course, I decided to do a true crime podcast. But there's another topic that has always fascinated me for as long as I can remember. And that is, I guess you would call it unexplained things. Uh, Fortean mysteries, if you, if you don't know what those are. They're named after Charles Fort, who like studied mysterious stuff like Bigfoot and Bermuda Triangle and UFOs and so forth. And I, uh, when I was in college, I studied parapsychology. And I, at, at one point, I actually wanted to go to grad school for parapsychology, which is kind of ridiculous because I don't think there's a lot of jobs in that field. But it's because it's like an offshoot of psychology, I've always been fascinated by it. So anything that's like ghosts or haunted places or things that are mysterious, I have like tons and tons of books on. And I would also like to talk about those things too. So I need to know if that would turn you away. You're like, nah, I don't want to listen to that crap. Or if you would be like, cool, I would like to hear stuff like that once in a while too. So please let me know. I told you I was into, I'm into like wax melts. So I, I just put a new one in and it's called Fresh Linen. It's supposed to smell like clean clothes and it smells so good. It's it's right behind me, smelling up the place really good. So with that said, let's get right back into discussing the life of Jasmine Richardson in early 2006. So from everything that we've heard, we know that it was around March 2006 that the two of them first started talking about killing Jasmine's parents. And most people familiar with the case agree that it was her who initiated this idea. But the first recorded mention of this is actually in an email that he wrote to her. And the date of it is March 16th. And I'm sorry, actually he wrote this to a friend of his. And it says, quote, the whole point of killing them would be to start a spree across Canada. R-O-F-L. Rolling on floor laughing. Kind of like the legendary Mickey and Mallory love. Now, have you seen that movie? It's called Natural Born Killers, and it's the best love story of all time. I loves it so much. I want to do it myself. Exclamation point. Now, I have to discuss this movie a little bit because you'll see it mentioned a few times in this story. Natural Born Killers. It is an awesome movie. I've seen it couple times and I have the director's cut on DVD. It's directed by Oliver Stone. He's known as to be kind of like an edgy push the envelope director which is what I like. I like movies that kind of stretch the boundaries of what's acceptable and 
this movie, it is about a couple named Mickey and Mallory. And it starts out, she's abused by her parents. And in the movie, she has a little brother. And her boyfriend, who's played by Woody Harrelson, and she's played by Juliette Lewis. And they're both awesome in this movie. He goes nuts and he kills her parents because, you know, they've mistreated her. So the two of them then go on a killing spree. And it just gets more and more ridiculous. And, I, yeah, I told you I have the DVD that has the director's commentary. And he, Oliver Stone, is telling you while it's happening what his thoughts were. Like, well, this represents blah, blah, blah. And I meant to say blah, blah, blah. And it's a lot of people don't get this, but it's a parody of violence in our culture. Like how we worship criminals and serial killers. And, you know, I always say in my disclaimer that I don't mean to glorify them in any way. i just trying to, and I, and I hope you all are too, trying to understand them and why they do the things that they do. Well, a lot of people who are not very intelligent or maybe too young to understand see a movie like this and they take it the wrong way. And I'm not at all blaming the movie. It's obviously the people who watch it that that, uh, that use it to justify these ideas. So Jeremy loves the idea. This is he'll, You'll hear him say that this is his favorite movie. It might be one of my favorites too, but certainly not for the same reason, because I think it's brilliant. It's, it's a satire. I would compare it with Beavis and Butthead. It's not glorifying the stupidity of these two teenagers. It's like a parody of, look how dumb these kids are. Like, they're so funny. You know, they, they, they talk about whatever it is. They, like, you know, we're going to get laid. And meanwhile, they're like 13 and real awkward and they're losers. And it's, if you, like, I, I guess I have a satirical mindset where I can appreciate that type of thing. So anyway, I think this movie's brilliant in that it, it perfectly parodies our culture's obsession with violence and the way that we glorify criminals and crime. But Jeremy tends to take it literally. And, it, you know, it starts out where the dude has the girlfriend and she's, in the movie, she's literally abused. I mean, we know that Jasmine wasn't, but in the movie, she's is by her parents. So he goes nuts, and I guess he thinks it's like a romantic gesture that he's, you know, saving her from her horrible parents. And then they, they go off on a, a literal literal killing spree. So he thinks it would be cool to do this and roll up. So this, again, is, is a very good example of how immature he is. Like He, he can't separate a movie from real life. And he, you know, th thinks that this is really a good idea. And more disturbing, he added in this, this email to the friend that in the movie, they spare her little brother. But in our version, he will be killed. And that's the first mention of this fact. So around this time, Jasmine's parents thought, well, Let's take her to therapy, which is, is a very good idea. And they, the three of them did go and see a, some kind of therapist, counselor, whatever. 
And they would say that she, they thought it was working because she seemed more cooperative and less hostile. So they said, all right, since you're being good, we'll let you go to one of these punk rock shows that you like, but we will go with you. And I remember when I was a teen, well, I mean, when I was 12, I wasn't, I mean, we already discussed how far beyond I was, behind everybody I was, but I can't imagine going somewhere with my parents. That, that would be like the ultimate embarrassment. But it, it was really nice of them. And that's the, the way they were. Like, you know, we support you. How about if we go there as a family and make this a family activity? Which I have to give them a lot of credit for that. So March 17th, the three of them go to a punk rock show. And you know how the band like takes a break. So the band was taking a break and Jasmine and a couple of her friends went outside to, you know, get some fresh air. And I don't know if this was pre-planned I kind of kind of think that it was, or she just ran into him. But guess who's outside, of course, is Jeremy. So Jasmine said, we started making out in the alley. Now, she's missing for a while, and her parents are obviously like, mm, where, where did Jasmine go? So they, they go out, and they start looking for her. They go outside. And keep in mind, they have never seen Jeremy. So Mark and Deborah happen upon their 12-year-old daughter, making out with this creature who is in all black, a mask on his face, eyeliner, and they promptly freak the fuck out. They're like, what are you doing? Who is this? So Jeremy runs off, and they were furious. I mean, like, I can picture, like, steam was probably coming out of their ears, like, you know, in a cartoon. So they were so mad, they grounded her for a month. And she wasn't allowed to talk on the phone. She wasn't allowed to use her computer. She couldn't listen to music. She couldn't go to the mall. She couldn't even wear eyeliner, which I can kind of see. If when I was a teenager, somebody said, you can't wear eyeliner, I would be like fit to be taught. So she said that she felt like a prisoner or like she was on house arrest. And being sneaky like she was, she still managed to email him using the computers at school and in the public library. And when her parents were sleeping, she would sneak downstairs and call them. And one time, I don't know how she manages, but she went down to the first floor. Remember I told you about the split level house and there's like a first and second floor. She goes out the window of the first floor. He picked her up in his truck and they go back to his trailer and have sex. And he took her back to her house and her parents you know must have heard something they woke up and they see her and they're like well what are you doing up and she goes well I had a nightmare and I needed to get some air they she said that she didn't know whether they believed her or not they're probably like kind of uh, you had a nightmare and you just happen to have be all dressed with makeup on like mm, okay so and and what about Jeremy's mom okay we know she was drunk most of the time but if your grown-ass son brings a 12-year-old girl into your house and they have sex, like, shouldn't you be like, what the fuck are you people doing? But, I mean, well, we know, like I said, she was drunk most of the time. So her friends said that Jasmine told them that her parents were being mean 
and she didn't want to be there anymore. So on March 20th, she writes to Jeremy an email, and she says, RAR, R-A-W-R, I hate them. So I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. So, so we are set. They are treating me like shit. I hate them so much. Now, any reasonable, keyword reasonable person would be like, oh, she's just upset. She's just saying that and be like, oh, calm down. You know, you don't mean that. You don't really want to kill them and, you know, kind of comfort her. But Jeremy, a light bulb goes off in his dim little brain and he's like, hmm. That's not an idea. So the next day he emails her back and he said, well, I love your plan, but we need to get a little more creative with like details and stuff. I wish they wouldn't treat you that way. Grr, it angers me to hear that. I dislike them very much. Don't worry. I love you too, my sexy beast. Ugh, she's 12. Like, this thought of calling a 12-year-old a sexy beast just like turns my stomach. So, March 24th, and we know all these dates because they were literally used as evidence against them. And just a hint, I hope nobody's, nobody out there is planning to commit a crime. But if you are, don't write the details of it in emails and texts and online. Because, like I just said, that shit can be used as evidence against you. But we're not talking about the uh, sharpest knives in the drawer with these two. So he puts on his Nexopia page. This is a poem. My girlfriend's family are totally unfair. They say that they really care. They don't know what is going on. They just assume as their greed continues to consume. She is slowly going insane. She continues to thank that I came into her life to help her out and to stop what they keep trying to shout. It's all total bullshit. Their throats I want to slit. They will regret the shit they have done, especially when I see to it that they are gone. They shall pay for their insolence. Finally, there shall be silence. Their blood shall be payment. Now, if that isn't premeditation, I don't know what is. And it's also, like I said, for being semi-literate, he does have a little bit of talent there. Kind of like a mixture of Poe and Lovecraft. So... They continued to discuss this murder that they were. At first, it was just talk, but then uh, it became like more and more serious. They talked about shooting them. They talked about stabbing them. Then they ha had the idea to poison them and somehow knock them out and burn the house down. And their friends, meaning like her friends and his friends, say that she kept pestering him about it. Like, um, when are you going to kill them? Are you going to kill them? Kill them. I need you to kill them. Hurry up and kill them. Like that type of thing. Like like actually nagging him about it. And these friends would later all say that they thought it was just talk. And right before Easter, she kept going around saying that she hated her parents, wished they were dead, couldn't stand it anymore, and they have to die. And I never did, but well, know that I wasn't normal. But a lot of teenagers say, oh, I can't stand my parents. They're horrible. They're mean. I feel like I'm in jail, and I wish they were dead, and I wish I was an orphan. And I think that kind of talk is fairly common. 
but there is a difference between just talk and, you know, actually, like, let's kill them for real. So one day, Jeremy is in his trailer, and him and his friend Jordan were drinking, as usual, and he's on the phone with Jasmine, and Jordan hears part of their conversation. And he, like, what it was, was um, he picked up the phone, I guess, to make a phone call. He didn't realize that Jeremy was talking on the phone, but he overheard this little snippet. And he heard Jasmine say, will you kill them? And Jeremy said, I'll think about it. So another time, Jeremy and his friend Grant, this is a good friend of his who he's known for, like, a long time. They were smoking weed in Jeremy's truck and... Jeremy asked his friend, how far would you go for love? And Grant said, what the hell are you talking about? And Jeremy said, Jasmine is pretty much going to break up with me unless I do it soon. I don't think I can do this by myself. I need somebody I can trust. Are you in? And Grant said, quote, go fuck yourself. So then he writes another song online. And this one has the line, I will kill, I will spill the blood for you tonight. It will be a blood-shedding fight. So everything's getting more and more ominous. And their thoughts about this murder that they have in mind is, is getting more and more real. So Saturday, April 22nd, and at Jeremy's trailer, which I'm sure you'll be shocked to find out, it's one of those places that kids go to hang out and drink and use drugs. Because, you know, his mom is, like, out of it all the time. So his friend Mick and his girlfriend Haley are there. And he says, I need to get wasted. Because he is planning to do this tonight. And he, like a lot of serial killers or, or killers that you read about, he needs to be in an altered state of, of consciousness in order to do this. So they go out and buy beer, and he got a bag of weed. And there's about five of them hanging around drinking beer, listening to music, and then they're drinking vodka, too. So he's all high, you know. He leaves the trailer about 9 o'clock, and he went to see his friend Jordan. Remember, that's the one I mentioned earlier. And he goes, Jordan, will you help me with this? And Jordan said, quote, no way, I don't have it in me to kill another human being, end quote. So, Jordan's a little bit bothered. He doesn't know if Jeremy's serious or if he's just bullshitting. So, Jeremy goes home, and he's called called Jasmine, and they argue. And Mick and Haley, the, the friends that are at his trailer, they heard him yelling, and they heard the mention of, of killing somebody. And so... Jeremy realizes that they've heard these plans, and he tells them, like, nobody better tell the police or I'll kill everybody. Well, they probably believe him because as scary as he is, he's talking about killing somebody. So, you know, why wouldn't you believe him? So they watch his favorite movie, Natural Born Killers, again. And he calls this girl named Casey Lancaster, who he knows has a crush on him, and he kind of uses her or like manipulates her because he knows that she'll do whatever he wants. So she said, can you buy me some cigarettes and come over? And uh, they're watching this movie. In the scene where they spare her little brother, Jeremy announces to everybody, 
that's where it's going to be different. Jasmine is going to kill her brother. So Haley goes, would you stop talking about killing them? And they said that they're used to him by now, like talking, casually talking about killing people. But this time it was just like, I guess something about it kind of made them think that mm, we think he might be serious about it and we don't want to hear that type of talk. So Jeremy goes, if you can talk her out of it, I won't do it. So two o'clock in the morning, he's all hopped up on substances and they hear him. He's on the phone with Jasmine and he goes, are you sure you want to do this? So he goes to his friend Cam's apartment and Cam is like a drug dealer. That is his source of cocaine. He, quote, did a bunch of lines there. So now he's he's all coked up in addition to drunk and on weed. And um, he got some ecstasy in there somewhere too. So he's kind of flying high as a kite at this point. And he bought an additional two grams of coke, like for the road or to go. So he goes to a convenience store, this is a little bit funny, to buy gum so that Jasmine wouldn't smell the smoke on his breath because she doesn't like him smoking. I mean, it, it's ironic because he's literally going to kill somebody and he's worried about what he smells like. So then he sat in his truck and he snorted the entire two grams of cocaine that he had got to go, which is an enormous amount of cocaine to do all at one time. So he drove to her house. I don't even know how he could drive at this point, but he does. And remember I told you that she snuck out through the one window that was on the first floor. Well, he goes to her bedroom window and this is kind of like a Romeo and Juliet scene. And they were like 14 years old, I think. He threw a pine cone at her window, so she she looked down and she made a motion for him to go to this window that I think that she had left open for him. So he had his trusty knife with him, or I think a couple, because he, remember, I, I don't know if I mentioned before, he was in the habit of carrying a knife, or I don't really know why. But, so he goes inside, and Deborah, who is in bed, hears a noise downstairs. So she comes downstairs in her nightgown. She turns on the light and she sees this scary-ass motherfucker all in black with a, a neck bandana holding a knife. And, I mean, talk about your worst nightmare. And I don't know if she realized exactly who he was, but she knew that he didn't belong there and he was up to no good. So... He lunged at her and, and started slashing, and she screamed. So Mark, the dad, hears him, this scream. So he jumps out of bed, and he runs downstairs, and he sees his wife laying on the floor all bloody, and this creepy-ass motherfucker with a knife standing over her. So he reached for the first any kind of weapon that he could find, which was a screwdriver, which... It was all he had. So, and Jeremy would later say, quote, He came at me real fast. I was scared shitless. I thought I was going down. I went to back up and I tripped and fell and he jumped on me and attempted to stab me in the chest and knocked the, I knocked the screwdriver out of his hand. 
He grabbed my face and shoved his thumbs in my eye. And Jeremy, you know, what kind of state he's in. He's breathing heavy. Now he's got all this adrenaline from, you know, he just killed somebody. And he's in the process of killing somebody else. So Mark was big and muscular, but Jeremy had the advantage of the knife and being on cocaine and every other substance known to man. He said, I was freaking out. I lost control. He jumped on top of me, and that's when I started stabbing him. At this point, Jasmine has, well, she's been awake, but she comes downstairs to see what's going on. So she sits on the, the steps for a little bit. She watches, and then she goes back upstairs. And Mark, in his, while he's dying, he says, who are you? And Jeremy doesn't answer. And uh, his last word was, why? And Jeremy said, quote, because you treat your daughter like shit. It's what your daughter wanted. And, and that's the last thing that he heard. Mark literally died protecting his family. So Jeremy goes upstairs. He's got blood all over him. And he's smearing blood all over the place. He sees Jasmine in the kitchen. And he said, quote, she gave me a hug, kissed me, and told me that she loved me. She turned around and went back upstairs. I waited for maybe 30 seconds. I don't know how long, but I turned to go upstairs and to find out what she was doing. I assumed she was grabbing some belongings or something, and I heard some kind of conversation, unquote. So Jacob, who somehow miraculously has been sleeping up to this point, he sits up in his bed and he said, Jasmine, what's going on? And this is according to Jasmine now. She, she said, shh, go to sleep. So she said she cradled his neck in her arm and squeezed. And she said that she was trying to make him pass out so that he would, you know, be knocked out for a little bit and that then those two could make their getaway. But it, it didn't work. So this poor little kid, he, he's like, he goes, what are you doing? So he got free and ran into the hall. So here comes... Jeremy now up the steps all bloody and hyperventilating and he goes we can't just leave him so there's a struggle and there's a big we'll hear a little bit more about this later but there's a big blood stain in the hall right outside Jacob's bedroom and the, the forensics people say that it means a major bloodletting event occurred there meaning you know, he was stabbed there. And to this day, it's not clear exactly who killed Jacob. They each continue, continue to blame the other one. But as with most cases where one person says this per thing and the other person says the other thing, the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. So I think most people agree that they both had a little bit of a hand in it. He was found in bed with his throat cut. So Jasmine said, wait for me, I need 15 to 20 minutes to gather some clothes and, and uh, whatnot that she, because remember, she thinks that her and Jeremy are going to run off and start a life together. So she has some things to pack. So he goes downstairs and he was shaking and he's like paranoid now. And he said, somebody saw me, I have to go, I can't breathe. So he's pacing and um he, he can't stop walking around, and he's panicking. And he gets in his 
truck and he drives back to his trailer and he, he stops to puke because he's all hyped up and upset. And it, it strikes me because the part where he said he's pacing and he keeps walking. I told you that I used to be a pre-sentence investigator and I interviewed a lot of murderers or you know, people who killed somebody. And I always like to ask them, what did you do before? What were you thinking right before? What was going through your mind? What did you do after? And so I, I don't know like a percentage or anything, but a lot of them said that right after they killed whoever it was that they killed, that they either went for a long walk or they paced. So there has to be something to that about, I think it's just like a stress or like an adrenaline reaction, like, oh my God, I just killed somebody. What do I do? And you're like freaking out, unless you're a psychopath, I think, and I think they kind of don't really have a conscience and they just go on about their business. But I can kind of relate, not that I've ever killed anybody, but if I have a panic attack a lot of times, which, yeah, I have panic disorder along with every other disease and thing there is, if it's really bad, I have to walk. It's like just to burn off that nervous energy. And a lot of times I'll just walk and walk until I tire myself out or my mind just calms down. And I think it's the same thing or the same type of phenomenon here. You know, I'm freaking out. I have to get out of here. I'm, I have to walk. So Jasmine packs some stuff and she stole her mom's debit card. She goes to a convenience store, gets some money out with it, calls a taxi and goes to Jeremy's trailer and they hug. And he has a black eye from, remember, he got into a fight with Mark while he was killing him. So they get in his truck and they, they go to a dumpster that's in an apartment building complex. And he threw away, apparently he worn plastic gloves or some type of gloves during the murder. And he threw these away. So they go back to this Cam's apartment. Remember, that's the drug dealer. And this is another party hangout or, you know, place where kids go and they're all, all drunk and high and all type of stuff. So Cam would later say that Jasmine was, quote, spaced out, wasn't all there. It was like she had seen a ghost, end quote. So Jeremy asked for some ice for his eye, and he asked Cam how to clean blood off of knives. So they're not, again, not being quiet or coy or secretive about what they had just done, as, as we'll see a little bit more later on. So they go into the bedroom, and they have the, um, it seems like a, requisite post-murder sex. And the reason I say that is it, it seems like so many cases I read about where a couple kills somebody, they celebrate by having sex. And I don't know if it's a celebrate. I don't know if they're, if it's something to do with the pacing, like they want to burn off adrenaline or they need comforted. That I'm not sure of, but I do know that it comes up a number of times in instances where one or the other of a couple or both kills somebody. It's, you know, their mind just, it's like sex. So Jasmine later said, quote, I didn't feel like anything was real. So 
I was so out of my mind. I couldn't really process what had happened, and I was trying really hard not to think about it, end quote. That does strike me as real. You know how you go through something traumatic, and you're like, kind of almost in a fog, like, you know, what just happened? Did I dream bad, or did, was that real? Or it, It's like a, you know, you, you don't know how to process what just happened. So they go to sleep. They woke up later in the afternoon, and Jasmine said she felt sick. So they go to the liquor store, of course. Then they go to another place where there's a party going on. Imagine that. There's no shortage of these houses in this story. And there's music and drinking and weed, of course. Jeremy has on sunglasses. And he introduces her to everybody. And he's a little bit excited because, remember, Jasmine's been grounded for quite a while. And this is kind of like her coming out party. He, you know, he, she hasn't been out for any any period of time. And he's like, hey, everybody, this is my girlfriend, Jasmine, blah, blah, blah. And he shows off his black eye. And some girl said, who just met Jasmine, said, I just thought she was a really nice girl. She seemed really happy. So they're laying on this couch. And, and uh, Jeremy is laying on it. And she is, like, straddling him. And they're... Like grinding on each other, if you can picture what I'm talking about. And to the point where the other people at the party said that it was making them uncomfortable. Now, if we're talking about teenagers who are gathered to take drugs and smoke weed and drink, and they're uncomfortable by this behavior, I mean, you, you can only imagine what they were doing, right? I mean, I don't like when people do shit like that either. It's like, get a room or something. So, Jasmine said that she was trying to hold it together, but he was weird and closed off. So, in the meantime, back at the uh, scene of the crime, it's about one in the afternoon, and Jacob has this little friend, Gareth, who's his age, who lives next door, and he wants to play with this little friend. So, he goes over and knocks on the door, no answer. And he doesn't purposely neb or spy in the window. But remember I told you it's a split level. So where he's standing, he can just naturally, if he turns his head, see into the first floor. So that's what he does. He just happens to turn his head, look over, and he sees through the window two dead people. And he kind of freaks out as one would. So he runs home, and he tells his mom, Mommy, there's bodies of Jacob's with blood on them. I saw them through the window. And his mother goes, What did you say? And she said at first she didn't know whether to believe him, because she's like, Oh, what? So she goes over to see for herself, and sure enough, Mark's lying there, face up on the floor, and covered with blood, and Deborah is behind the couch at like a weird angle. So she called her mother, I guess she was upset and she wanted like reassured or something. Then she called 911. So unfortunately, we have another victim here. This poor little kid, he's only eight years old and he sees this bloodbath. So he's kind of fucked up, you know, by what he saw. He's traumatized. So at 134, Sergeant Brent Sequondiak, who's a young cop, was the first on the scene. He calls for backup and they go in. And they find blood everywhere. It's smeared on the walls. 
at the foot of the stairs, they see Deborah lying on the floor in what they said was an unnatural position. And her nightgown was hiked up, and she didn't have any clothes on underneath. So they're wondering, mm, is this maybe a sexual thing? But it wasn't. It just was the way she landed. And there's a little black dog laying or sitting beside her whining. He, you know, he's upset too. His mom just got killed. So beyond her was Mark, who's also face up in a pool of blood. And lying near him was a knife with its tip bent. And that means that it had hit bone. You know, he'd been stabbed so hard that it literally broke the knife. So they follow the, the blood trail to upstairs. They find another knife on the bathroom counter. And they notice a pink bedroom with stuffed animals. It looks to be a girl's room. And then they see Jacob's room. And he is laying on his side in his bed with a big gash in his throat. And there's blood everywhere in here. It's on the floor. It's on his purple walls. It's on his wrestling figures, his Pokemon cards. And a lot of the cops who worked this case said that this was the worst crime scene that they had ever seen. And they, they were, if the cops are traumatized, you know, it's bad. So they looking around the house and they see a framed family picture. And there's mom and dad and a little boy. And there's a girl. And they're like, well, where's the girl? So they talk to the neighbors. And they're like, do they have a daughter? And the neighbors are like, yeah, yeah they have a 12-year-old daughter. But she looks a lot older, like maybe 16. And one of the neighbors said that. The family has been having problems with her. So they look everywhere for Jasmine. They at first think that she was abducted by whoever killed her family, which is a reasonable assumption. So they have dogs, you know, like police dogs. They got the crime scene team. They're looking everywhere. There's, there's no Jasmine. So they find a picture of her, and it's her school picture. And they put it out to the media because they have an Amber Alert. And they do have that in Canada, too. And they they initially say, look for this girl because we think she may have been abducted. So they took photos and videos of the crime scene. And the, the degree of violence suggests to them that whoever did this was in a rage. And the police called Sandra Richard. Remember, that's the guidance counselor. And they want information on Jasmine. And they also want to look at her locker in school. They think maybe they'll find some clues or, you know, something as to where she is there. So at 3.30, the cops go to her school and they meet Sandra. And they tell her why they're there, what happened. And they say that they're looking for the names of her friends if she knows them. So she does. She gives them some names and, and phone numbers. And they open Jasmine's locker. And they find something very disturbing in there. They find a binder with... Um, Jasmine was into writing and drawing. And she had written a cartoon, drawn a cartoon. And it shows stick figures. There's a family of three stick figures being burned alive while two other stick figures are watching, laughing, and one of the stick figures runs to a truck that's labeled Jeremy's truck, and one of them in the fire is, is saying, ah, I'm being burned alive. Help, help, my flesh is being burned off. 
And there's something that she wrote in there, and it says, quote, May the hatred and anger built of blazing infernos fill you and overcome you. May the pains of a thousand tortured, T-O-R-C-H-E-R-E-D, I guess that means tortured, souls come upon you like scalding blade and eclipse all other noble feeling. May your hopes, dreams, and happiness fall into the spiraling pit of despair never to return. May your peace of mind and safety be gone to you to be forever afraid and ailed. A-I-L-E-D. May the black overcome you in the pain never ending. May all you love be stolen and destroyed just out of reach to never again feed such joys. Amen. End quote. Wow. Holy shit, is that disturbing. I mean, that is so dark. I don't even think Poe could come up with something so dark. That's hatred. That is like pure hatred with a capital H. I think of all the things that I've I've seen and I've read, that is the most disturbing and telling, uh, just hate-filled thing that, and it, it really shows the depth of her hatred towards them. And we know what they did to her, and they grounded her, and they were totally, totally reasonable people. And from that little poem or whatever, you would think that they tortured her and abused her. And, you know, it, it's, it makes you wonder, how can somebody be so hateful for, like, no reason? And it's, anyway... The cops think the same thing, and, and so does Sandra, the guidance counselor. And as soon as they see this shit, they're like, oh, she's not a victim. She was in on this. So Sandra knew, not sure how, but she knew that this Jeremy character was Jasmine's boyfriend. So the cops are like, oh, no, we got a murder suspect. So they put an APB out for Jasmine and Jeremy. And they start talking to the friends of them to see if anybody knows anything. Didn't realize how lucky they were going to get because, remember, they had literally been filling their guts to all their friends about their plans. So Jeremy's friend James tells the police that, that, that they have been discussing killing their parents. And Jordan, remember him, remember he's the one who Jeremy said, would you help me do this? He went to the station sobbing the police station, and he said that at one of these party houses that Jeremy bragged that he, quote, gutted them like a fish. And Jasmine said that Jacob gargled as he died. I guess, you know how when somebody's throat's cut, it's like the sound of the air escaping or whatever it makes that noise. Well, I mean, I can just imagine. So Sergeant Sequondiac was a little bit kind of like what? He had known Jeremy, and he said, quote, he never had a driver's license. I wrote him multiple tickets. I talked to him a hundred times and never thought he'd be capable of something like this, end quote. So we're going to take a break, and I forgot to read in some fun facts. Remember, I had fun facts last time. I think after that, we could all use some. I don't like to leave you on such a sour note. Uh, this one's about royalty and this is kind of a it surprised me queen elizabeth ii is a trained mechanic 
can't picture her fixing a car, can you? And here's one about physics. There are about 500 quadrillion atoms in a speck of dust. How do they count this shit? That's what I'd like to know. Here's one on plants. This is a little bit disturbing. The smell of fresh cut grass is actually the smell of each grass blade trying to heal itself from the trauma of being cut. That's like kind of sad. I mean, I like the smell of grass. I think most people do. You know, fresh cut grass is like a fresh, naturey smell. And to hear that it is the smell of plants being upset is kind of upsetting. <laughs> so, okay, that's enough for today. And I will see you. Remember, subscribe to my show. Leave me a review on iTunes. And tell your friends about my podcast. I will see you back here for part three. Okay, goodbye.